Good morning. Uh, it's good to see some of your faces after two and a half years. You know, you always see my face, right? But sometimes I don't get to see what you look like. Um, we thank God that we are able to come back to worship Him. Our series for this month uh, is, of course, every September is our mission month and we are talking about following Jesus to the ends of the world. I'll start off with the vision and then uh, next two weeks we'll invite um, our missionaries that were sent out, firstly with Alyssa, who will share about the word, uh, which is what she's doing, and then uh, Homan and his family about the marginalized. And then the last week will be on the marketplace. I invited uh, Professor Joseph Song, who is the dean of the uh, NTU's medical school. He was widely credited to help Hong Kong navigate the SARS crisis uh, back then. And he's one of our regular worshippers in our Chinese congregation. So we're here to bring us the word about missions in the marketplace. Okay, and so today we will start with the vision of what is on God's heart. Let us uh, go to the Lord in the word of prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you and commit this time. I pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. That truly we see Christ lifted up. They desire what your desire is and that you will be glorified. So speak to us. Thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I have a professor of missions called Larry Waters. And he shared this story. He says 56 years ago, his wife and him, they went to the Philippines. He says his wife was expecting their second child and they thought it would be a normal pregnancy. So they settled in a place where the medical facilities was adequate but still primitive compared to the West. But because they were expecting a normal pregnancy, he was not too concerned. So December 14 that year, his second son was born. Immediately, he was diagnosed with having severe respiratory issues. And over the next three weeks, he was mishandled, brought in and out of the incubator several times, and after putting up a valent fight for his life, he passed on January 19. And my professor said, you know, after those arduous weeks and having experienced the heartache of a parent bearing a child, inevitably they asked God, Why? Since we have sacrificed our family life and comfort to surrender to your will and to submit to your desires. So why did this happen? Now friends, today I'm not going to to be here talking to you about suffering. We're talking about missions. But why do I bring up this story? See, many times we do not think of missions. That's not on the forefront of our minds. We are concerned about what's in front of us, our challenges, obstacles, or what we are suffering or struggling with. And yet, without understanding the big picture of what God is doing, we cannot understand why we go through certain things. And so today, I will attempt to talk to us about the heartbeat of God. What is God doing throughout time and history? The one thing that He's doing that we may respond to Him. So from Psalms 67, we will see the heartbeat of God and secondly, our own heart. Two hearts, God's heart and our heart. God is on mission through His suffering people. Psalm 67 is the Old Testament Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer of God's people. It can be divided into three sections. At first, it begins, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Selah. Selah means pause. These psalms were used as worship songs, and the, the, the cry is that God bless us. Why? Continues, that your way 
may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and you'll guide the nations on the earth. Selah. The second portion reveals the reason. They are saying, God bless us so that the nations can know you. See all the, red, the words highlighted in red? All the earth, all nations, all people. And that's God's heartbeat. Verse 4 is right in the middle, the, the heart of the psalm. Let the nations be glad. Right from the beginning, that's God's heartbeat. The third segment, he goes back to, let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. And so, the heart of this psalm is that all nations will worship God. And they're asking that God bless us so that this happens. They're asking for God's blessing because this is what God promised to Abraham. God says, Abraham, I'll bless you and through you, all nations will be blessed. So how will all nations worship God? Through Abraham, through the blessing of Abraham. Hence, the people of God, the Israelites, who are descendants of Abraham, will say, God, God bless us. Fulfill what you have promised to Abraham so that all nations will worship you. Friends, this is the heartbeat of God right from the beginning, that all nations will bless Him. When we turn to Scripture, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, God's salvation and redemptive plan was not an afterthought. He had this in mind right from the beginning. He says, the seed of the woman shall deliver the death blow unto Satan, bruise his head, and then Satan will bruise the heel. And this brings to mind the picture of Jesus upon the cross, doesn't it? Upon the cross, Jesus died, the serpent bruised his heel because we know that he will resurrect. But upon the cross, Jesus dealt the death blow unto Satan. And so right from the beginning of time, God already had this in mind. And so that is why in the book of Genesis, they are very concerned about who gave birth to who. You know, you read all the genealogies. It's because they wanted to know who is this seed of the woman that God is sending to save us. So by the time of Abraham, God told him, go forth from your country and your relatives, from your father's house, to the land, the promised land of Canaan, which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a seed, and through that you have many seeds, a great nation, and I will bless you. Make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. In you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. God says, I'm going to bless you, but this blessing is so that all nations will be blessed. Again, God shows His heartbeat is for all nations, even though He chose the nation of Israel. But through them, all nations will come to know Him and worship Him. Later, this seed of the woman, the, the, the son of Ab- descendant of Abraham, will be known as the son of David. He will be a king over God's house. Throughout the prophets, God would say, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. In the time when Israel was disobedient, they were surrounded by their enemies. Yet God's heart was for all nations to know Him. The various Psalms we read, Psalm 67, Psalm 96, would say all the world will come to worship Him. This is God's heartbeat. And about the time of Jeremiah, God says, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day I took them 
by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Since I'm going to make a new covenant that's different from the one when he led them out of Egypt through Moses. Like the covenant he made with them on Sinai. He says, my covenant, that covenant they broke although I was a husband to them. But this covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, in this new covenant, the law is not written on tablets of stone but on hearts of men. That God will give us His Spirit within us. And finally, Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse because He was hung on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise God gave to Abraham, the blessing through whom all nations will be blessed, Paul tells us it's through Christ. By the death of Christ, we receive it by faith, the promise of the Spirit. So Psalm 67 is praying for the reality and presence of God within the life of the Israelites so that the nations will know God. In our, in, under the New Covenant context, we are praying that we will be able to live out the Gospel so that the people around us can come to know God and experience this blessing, the promise of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So friends, when we look, take a quick look in Scripture, we see God's heartbeat that right from the beginning, it was for the nations to worship Him. Not just the people of Israel, not just His people, but for all nations. Similarly, when we turn from Scripture to history, we see the same pattern. Ralph Winter, leading missiologist of his time, wrote this article, The Empire Strikes Back. It says, in the first 400 years, the church was being persecuted. But yet, the faith grew. Until 325, when Emperor Constantine became a Christian, he made Christianity a state religion. A historian wrote, if Constantine did not make Christianity a state religion, Rome would not have withstood the influence of Christianity for another 10 years. What he's saying is that because the Christians reached out to the poor, the lame, the diseased and the sick, those who were abandoned by the Romans, they had exerted such an influence that even if Constantine didn't make Christianity a state religion, Christianity would still expand its influence. Constantine's mother, Helena, was a key influence in his life. After he became a Christian. She went back to her promised land and looked out for all the holy sites. And so today, you go to Israel, you know, you're the church of the Holy Sepulchre, the church of the resurrection. All those holy sites, they are churches. They were all identified uh, by Constantine's mother, Helena. Nonetheless, what happened when Christianity became the state religion? Everybody became Christians because there was power and honour uh, when you are a Christian. Yet, what they did right was that they had a heart for the nations. They began to share the gospel to the Gothic barbarians to the north, the Germanic barbarians. So much so in 410, when the barbarians finally sacked Rome, the first time in their history, you know, these barbarians were Christians. So they had respect for property and life, especially that of the church. And so Rome did not suffer as big as a catastrophe as she would have because of these people. By the end of 880, Christianity flourished under Charlemagne the Great in France. Schools and the 
seminaries were built. Social issues, theological issues were evaluated in light of Scripture. There was a flourishing of the faith. But they did not have the missionary heart of the predecessors. They did not share their faith further north to the Vikings. And so eventually when the Vikings came south, these people were pagans. They raped, pillaged, killed. They especially targeted monasteries and churches because monasteries and churches have wealth and they're relatively unguarded. But once again, friends, the power of the gospel shone through. The conquerors were conquered by the faith of the captives. What do I mean? The Christian women and monks were taken as slaves and wives began to lift out the gospel and influence the Vikings by the end of 1200 AD. No king in Europe can be a king without acknowledging the church. The church was, was at a zenith of a political power. And yet, they didn't have the heart to share the gospel. And so, the next 400 years is what we call the Dark Ages. Christendom, areas once occupied by the Christian faith in the Middle East, in Africa, were now taken over by the Muslims. Instead of sending missionaries, Europe sent crusaders. And you know, prior to this, Muslims had positive view and relationship with Jews and Christians. But it was because of the crusades that the relationship broke and we are still feeling the effects today. Yet in the midst of darkness, God was still at work. It began with the Renaissance when Europe began to take interest in going back to the classics, to read Greek and Hebrew, and they rediscovered Scripture in the original languages. And they found, you know, they began to translate Scripture into the common tongue, whether it's French, English, German, and they faced persecution because of that. And as a result of this, 1517, we know, was the Reformation. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses of why the church went wrong. And eventually, the Reformation happened. Now, Luther didn't want to split from the church. But the Reformation was both a religious as well as a political movement because kings didn't want to live under the influence of the Pope. So back then, there was one church, a universal church. A universal means Catholic church. Now there's a group of people who protested and moved out, and so they were known as the Protestants. And so we are all part of the Protestant movement. Now it's no longer one church. And so the Universal Catholic Church decided they needed to make a distinction because they were headquartered in Rome. They were known as the Roman Catholics. So now there are two branches, but it's no longer under one Pope, one church. But because of the decentralizing of the faith, there was also huge momentum. So in the 18th and 19th century, we began the huge missionary movement because we often credit the father of modern missions to be William Carey, who is a Baptist. Through him, Hudson Taylor and all his generation of people over the few hundred years, Christianity moved from the West to the majority world. So much so today, the center of gravity of our faith is no longer in the West, but in the majority world of Asia, Africa, South America. And so friends, what do we see in the redemptive history? Ralph Winter, in his article, made this conclusion. He says, beyond the agony of Rome was winning the barbarians. Beyond the agony of the barbarians was the winning of the Vikings. Beyond the agony of the Western world, we can only pray that there will be a defeat of Satan's power holding millions of hostage in thousands of people groups. He says, despite all the 
struggles of the church, when externally we seem to be persecuted and suffering, God was at work. And you know when we mess up the most? When we had political power. Friends, you know, our hope is not in political power. It's not in being triumphant or victorious. It's not in trying to win the MPs and the kings. Our hope is in the gospel. And despite all the external circumstances, how it looks, God is still at work. Right from the beginning of time, from when we look at scriptural history, we look at our church history, God is only doing one thing. He's saving the nations so that the nations worship Him. You look at the timeline. It, it began when Christianity was just a, a sect in Judaism, in Palestine. By the end of 2,000 years, it was a worldwide religion because God was at work. And so today, it's incumbent of, on us to lift out the gospel. Psalm 67 says, God, fulfill your promise to Abraham so that all nations will be blessed. To us, we are not saying, God, make me wealthy and successful so that I can witness for you. That's a wrong understanding of Psalm 67. It is saying that, God, let us lift out the gospel so that the nations will worship you. And we lift out the gospel to people who do not know Jesus. A few weeks ago, you know, PMD addressed the 377A issue. And we did not make any respond, response. Because a few years ago, firstly, we have really clearly stated our position. Okay, we didn't think we need to react. Because over the last few years, what we have been doing is systematically to equip the church of what is healthy sexuality. So whether the youth group or young adults, we, we talk about this topic. And this year, of course, in June, we talk about the Song of Songs. The purpose is so that we will be known not just for what we are against, but what we are for. We understand, you know, that this movement is political. But friends, at the same time, our hope is not in politics. We encourage each one of us as Singaporeans to, to vote according to your conscience. But our hope is not in politics, but in the gospel. And the gospel tells us that all of us are sinners whether you're heterosexual or you're homosexual, we all struggle with sexual brokenness. We all are sinners and we all need the gospel. And so well, individually, we encourage you to you know, be a good citizen of Singapore. But collectively, as our church, our position is to lift up the truth humbly, gently, and honestly. Friends, throughout history, God is only doing one thing. It's to win the nation so that the nations will worship Him. What about us? In the New Testament, Paul tells us, for to you, you have been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. 2 Corinthians, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. How do we live out the gospel? Not in being blessed and triumphant and victorious. Scripture tells us when we carry about the dying of Jesus, we are granted the privilege not just to believe but to suffer. God is accomplishing His mission through His suffering people. He desires that all nations 
will be glad. All nations will come to worship him. Don Richardson is a tribal missionary to the Sawi people. He said the Sawi people are a treacherous, violent bunch. You know, when he told them the story of Judas betraying Jesus, they worship Judas. He says, well, he's a hero, you know, and for them, they have a practice called fattening the calf for the kill. He says they'll treat the enemies really well, and then when the enemies are not aware, they'll kill them and eat them. And then they said, we never thought about kissing our enemies at a moment of truth like Judas. So they were so inspired by Judas, you know. And so when Richardson heard this, his heart went cold because the Sawi people were really nice to him. So he thought, what were they doing, right? One day, two families were having a fight in front of his house. Someone died. And that was the last straw. He says, you know, I'm going to move to another village. Now the people didn't want this because with Richardson, you know, he brought with them the wonders of technology and medicine. So they says, we will have peace. And he says, how can I trust you? So they say, we perform this ritual, a tradition, you know. So the next day, the two families, one of the family gave the only son to the other family. This son is known as the peace child. They said, as long as the peace child is alive, we will have peace. And then suddenly, it dawned upon Richardson. He says, you know, Jesus was God's peace child that he sent to the world. And then the Sawi people said, what? Why didn't you tell us earlier? You know, if we knew he was the peace child, we wouldn't have worshipped Judas. What Judas did was heinous and treacherous. And because of this idea of a peace child, eventually the whole Sawi tribe opened to the gospel and they were saved. And Richardson had this thesis. He thought, in all these tribes that, were, that had lived in isolation for centuries, why do they have such stories that are so similar to Scripture? Perhaps they come from a time, you know, after Noah, when the world was split into different places and they began to live in isolation. So the, the, the tradition and the culture carried those stories. In the Bible, it's written down, so it's hard to change, right? Because it's recorded. But in these tribes, it's passed on verbally from generation to generation. And so the story might change, but the essence would still be there. He called these stories redemptive analogies. So for the rest of his life, he would go into different tribes, understand their language and culture, and to look out for such redemptive analogies. And it's without fail, one tribe after another. And in his book, he recorded at least 20 tribes with such stories. Friends, is it a surprise to you that such tribes that the world uh, would not even pay attention to that has lived in isolation centuries ago, God has already put the seed of the gospel in their culture. Is it a surprise? It should not because that is the heart of our God. Whether we look at scriptural history, we look at church history, or we look at the stories of these tribes, we see the one thing God is doing. God is on mission through His suffering people so that all nations will come to worship Him. And friends, if God is doing the one thing, the question is, what are we doing for our lives? How should we respond? If we know that's God's heart, what is our heart? And I think the only reasonable response is to say, God, let God be on mission through you. Wherever, whenever, whatever. You know, a few weeks ago, I went to visit Homan and family, right? Um, on, the do, on the way back, I felt unwell. At first, I thought it was because, you know, I ate too much. You know, where they are, it's actually famous for durians, okay? And it's really good, cheap and good. So, Homan bought a lot of them. Then Pengkiao and I, uh, two of us went, right? So, we ate. And every day, he brings us to eat barbecue food. 
So the last day when I was coming back, I felt unwell and I felt a bit paise, you know. Why? Because people say, oh, you went on mission trip and felt sick, you suffer for Christ. But actually, it's because of my gluttony, right? So eventually, I found out I actually got COVID. So I said, oh, hang on. You know, uh, I was isolated for a few days and uh, it was good. By the sixth day, I was well, but I didn't want to come out because I thought my MC is seven days, you know. So I stayed in my room. I had many days of reflection. So in my journal, I wrote this, you know, my reflection of the trip. I said, the kind of life that they are leading there is the kind of life I thought I would lead 20 years ago. When I went to full-time ministry, simple, spartan, single-minded. You know, in following Jesus over your lifetime, in serving Jesus full-time, for me, life gets complicated. We get married, we have children, you worry about children's future, your parents get old, your health get old, you think about your future, your own dreams. You know, then church, of course, church has a lot of issues to deal with. Life gets complicated. But again and again, I'm reminded of the one purpose. There's something in the purity of being single-minded that gives us joy, peace, and satisfaction. So friends, if this is God's agenda, God's heart, the question we have asked ourselves, what is our agenda? What is your purpose of your life? What are you trying to achieve? Because God is only doing one thing. How are we responding? This is God, let God be on mission through you, wherever, whenever, whatever. We say this not because we are extra spiritual, but simply because it's the love of Christ that grabs our heart. And that is why the Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Second Corinthians, the people saying, Paul, you are mad. And Paul says, if I'm mad, it's because of God. If I'm a sound mind, because of you. I'm doing what I'm doing because the love of God compels me. Do you understand the gospel? Truly understand what it means when Jesus died for us undeserving sinners. In the depths of your sin and depravity and disgust, God loves you. Christ died for you and He rose again. And hence, the love of Christ compels us. Friends, what agenda do you have for your life? Because God is interested in using all of our lives, every area of our life, to be on mission for Him. My professor Larry Walters, you know, he shared about the loss of his child. He says one day after lecture, he came out and he found he couldn't find his car. Searched all over campus and finally, in one dark corner, he found his car left with the shell. Everything was stripped off, the tires, everything inside. So he made a police report. A few weeks later, the police called him to go to court. He says, we caught the person. He says, what, does, what do I have to do in court? I've never been to court. He says, you just turn up, you know, and we'll charge him and then he'll pay for all your legal fees and all your losses. And he thought, why not, right? So he asked his friend, a Christian lawyer, to go with him. He says, what, what should I do? What should I bring? And his friend says, just bring anything you want. So he brought a stack of books. His friend, George McDowell, had just published more than a carpenter at the time. So he bought a stack of it to court. 
It says when I entered the court, uh, there was a judge, a few people, and then he saw the family. A young man and his mother. The mother was crying. They didn't understand English. They were really poor. And my professor said, he told the lawyer, he says, I don't think I can go through with this. How can I bring myself to charge them, you know? Look, look at them. Then suddenly he had an idea. He says, why don't we drop the charges and um, just let him read this book and make a book report? So the lawyer says, I don't know whether can or not. So he talked to the other lawyer. The other lawyer says, I don't know if we can allow this. They talked to the judge. And then the judge took off the glasses and looked at him. He says, what book? He says, oh, this book is about the Christian faith. I would like the young man to read about it. So she said, okay. Young man, are you three months later, you'll come back with a book report. And you can see, you know, there was relief that washed over the family. And Larry Waters said he felt this weight just roll off his back. He felt so relieved. He turned to walk away and then the person, one of the people listening to the case asked him, can I have a book, a copy of the book? So he gave one out. The clerk who was recording the proceedings came up to him and asked for a book. The guard, the security guard says, hey, I know a few people who might need that book. Can I have a few? And by the time he walked out of the courtroom, he gave up his whole stack of the books. They were talking in the corridor and then people came up to them. I heard what happened in the courtroom. Can I have a copy of that book? Now he has no more copies left. But his friend, the lawyer, Ray, opened his briefcase and his whole stack of tracks. And so they just stood there and people came up to them. The whole afternoon, they just giving out tracks. A year later, Ray called him and says, the judge told me that the family is now worshipping at a Bible-believing church. So I remember what Professor Waters shared. After he shared about the loss of his child, about this case, he says, God is on mission. God is on mission through you. But in order for him to do that, there is a price to pay. The question is, are we willing? Because the way of Jesus is a downward way. The way of Jesus is the way of gentleness. The way of Jesus is the way of service and selflessness. The way of Jesus is the way of humility. Friends, our hope is not in politics. It's not in exerting our rights. It's not in getting our way. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you get the gospel, how are we living it in our lives? That do we say, God, let you be on mission through me whenever, wherever, whatever. Psalm 67 is a prayer that the, God's reality and presence will be so real in their lives that the nations around will know Him, just as what God promised them. As new covenant believers, we know the Abrahamic blessing is, that, is the gospel. We love to say we are blessed to be blessed, which is from the Abrahamic covenant, which is true. But unfortunately, many of us understand it as God blessed me materially so I can bless others. It's a good principle, friends, but it's not what Abrahamic blessing is about. God is on mission. Throughout time and history, He's only doing one thing. The question is, what are you doing with your life? And if Psalm 67 becomes a reality, do you know what that looks like? Why do we try to save people? It's not just to save souls. John Piper says, he says, missions is not the ultimate purpose of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship and not missions is the ultimate because God and not man is the ultimate. 
And God is willing to use our lives to be a mission for Him. So friends, whatever we are going through, how can the Missio Day be demonstrated and declared? In our church, the vision has three pillars. To outreach, impact community and beyond for Christ. You know, we, we change them to core values and we title it Missio Day, the mission of God. Because God is ascending God. And whatever we are struggling with, never doubt your significance and destiny in the times of suffering. God has not abandoned us. And so no matter how hard it gets, we do not quit. We don't live for what was, but for what is, one day at a time. Don't think about what I've lost. You know, I could have been like that. But what is today? And we take it one step at a time. And we'll always be sure to share God's work in your life, to tell it, to write it, because we are called to be witness to the lost, to the lonely, to the lame, to the marginalized, to those who need the gospel. If God is only for one thing, what are we doing in our lives? The book of Revelations gives us a glimpse of what Psalm 67 will look like in reality. After these things, I looked up, uh, John the Apostle said, and behold, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, in heaven, one day, you and I will be there. I will be there. Hopefully you are. The question is, who else will we bring along? Let us pray. Father, there are many things that captures our attention. What is in front of us? Our studies, our families, our careers, our struggles and sufferings. Things may not seem to go our way. Our rights may not be fulfilled. But God, we know there's a reality. You are unfolding your redemptive plan. And one day, you will become a reality that all nations will worship you. And I pray, Father, that we would understand this and let our lives have a single-minded purpose of living for you, of serving people. Because it is your love that compels us. Thank you, I pray in Jesus' name.